You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. I'm your host, Breege Burke. Uh, this week's episode, for this week's episode, uh, rather than talk about a particular mythological figure, we're going to talk a little bit about a, a kind of a group of uh, mythological narratives that uh, Sarah Isles Johnston call, refers to as the Dying Maidens or the Hanging Virgins. Um, in particular, um, Hanging Virgins really being sort of a subset of this um, Dying Maiden, uh, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, you know, theme. We'll call it a theme. And the question becomes, uh, with a theme like this, um, the stories, when you, if you read the stories, they, they seem rather strange. And we've talked recently about the Furies, we've talked about, or the Arrhenius, we've talked about, um, you know, we, we've talked about different, um, trying to find my, you know, the right word here, where, we, you know, we, we've talked about these, these sort of different goddesses who deal with women, particularly, um, who are on the verge. They're in, they're kind of in between, um, uh, girlhood and, and adulthood. We talked about Persephone last time in particular. We talked about how she, um, how her myth actually, there, there may be at least on one level, a representation of that passage from girlhood to womanhood. Okay, and uh, although it's also important to understand that in ancient Greece, that to become a full um, gine, to become a full woman, um, and not just you know Parthenos or Kore, um, one actually had to um, give her husband children in order to actually fully reach that that state. Otherwise, if she was still kind of considered Parthenos or, or virgin uh, until that time, even if she was was married. And uh, this this sort of rite of passage, it's very interesting the connection that this has to uh, the Chthonic realm, to the underworld. Uh, there's a few focal points here. Um, I, I, as I was researching this, and my main source for this I'm going to cite you know, right now, which is one I've used before, which is um, The Restless Dead by Sarah Isles Johnston. And um, I've, I've actually been looking elsewhere outside of her work for a little bit more information about these stories, but it's there. It's you know, other than the finding, you know, certain accounts of the stories themselves, it's been very difficult to find something else that's quite specific on this theme. So I'm relying a little bit heavily on her version. So just just so you just so you know, uh, if you want to do further research, um, I recommend checking the book out. Um, <clears throat> it's called the full title is The Restless Dead: Encounters Between the Living and Dead in Ancient Greece. And uh, it's not it's not a subject that's very well written on, but this time um, I think with with talking about the hanging virgins and the reason I bring these up now um, is because you know simply because we are talking about these rites of passage we've like I said we've talked about the furies and the idea of uh, young women who end up accompanying the furies. Um, we talk about um, you know young women who are snatched away before they are able to to bear children. Uh, you, you know you have different stories or that snatch away you know the children themselves. And this is sort of in, in this, this is in keeping with that with that kind of a theme. Uh, the Hanging Virgins is very interesting because uh, it has there's I, I could probably point to at least two or three major themes that um, 
that these that these stories seem to center around in all of their different versions. Because again, like most myths and mythological stories, there is um, you know there, there's multiple versions, uh, and and outcomes may be different in different stories. Um, okay, so just looking at my notes here. Um, okay, so let's talk about what the hanging virgins are. As I mentioned, they're they're sort of part of a, the dying maiden motif. And generally, they tend to, the stories about them tend to fall into one of two categories. Uh, one, you have a young girl who angers a goddess in some way and is therefore, um, you know, either killed or driven, driven to suicide or something like that. Um, and in another case, it may be a young girl who is threatened by someone outside of her family. Um, it could be someone who's threatening to rape her, for example, or... Um, <clears throat> You know, there's, 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 there's a couple of different uh, examples of these kinds of stories. In some of these stories, they'll bring in uh, a young man, as I think I had mentioned, the, 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 the quote-unquote bad boy motif. Um, <clears throat> in some cases, we are going to bring in, there are young men who, uh, um, you know, who, you know, who, where basically, you know, where the young girl falls in love with the, um, with this person, and then the, the, the union is forbidden by parents, or that the person abandons her, and so, of course, she kills herself in grief. That's another sort of offshoot of this. Um, although Isles Johnston, when she talks about those stories, usually Dionysus tends to be the figure, the seducing figure. And he, do, you know, and, and she's sort of um, wary of his actual role in these. She thinks it might, um, that the representations might actually be something different. But worth mentioning that that, that is sometimes part of the story. Um, now, what all the stories have to do with is some kind of inappropriate behavior on the part of young girls, usually sexual in nature. So um, it could be appealing to a goddess um, who is in, in their, their married form. It's interesting. You're, you're, uh, there are different there are different versions of Hera and Artemis and Athena and um, you know the the various Olympian goddesses, and some some of them you are only allowed to make offerings to if you have reached a certain stage of life. Um, and if the girls are making offerings uh, to a version of Hera who is meant for married women, who is, you know, it's intended, to, you know, it's married women who are supposed to refer to her by that name and make offerings under that name, then they could be punished if they are not, in fact, married women. Okay, that's, that's one kind of, a, that, that's one considered inappropriate behavior having to do with um, sex in a different way. But it, it may also simply be, um, you know, you know, being you know, falling in love outside of perhaps what their parents' wishes are, or um, or actually engaging in sexual you know behavior that is is forbidden or uh, is problematic uh, for the for the goddesses. So, in other words, in a way, and now one might want to take a moralistic view of this and say, oh well, um, if you're um, you know, maybe it's a way of, you know, like a didactic tale. It's more moralistic where you're saying, oh, well, young girls who engage in this inappropriate behavior, you know, it's a warning not to do that because look what could happen to you. Uh, maybe, maybe you never will get married. Maybe you'll die a virgin and have to, you know, you know, follow these, these particular deities around the underworld. The deities in particular that are associated with um, these uh, dying maidens and the hanging virgins tend to be... Within the underworld, we're talking about Hecate, and we're talking about uh, the the Furies or the Erinus, um, in particular. 
uh, as far as the Olympians go, as we'll see, the main goddess who seems to be associated with them is Artemis. Okay, and Artemis, um, I would like to do a whole episode on Artemis, even though she's not technically Chthonic, because uh, she has she, she has so much to do with uh, the rites of passage. She has a connection to Hecate, and um, and Hecate, of course, is going to be the subject of the next episode. But you know, there's there's just so much there um, that that really plays into this theme. And as we know, Artemis is a virgin goddess, so. Um, you know, the virginity of young girls and the um, appropriateness of their passage into womanhood and, and motherhood and that sort of thing seems to be of, of great concern. And, uh, you know, and, and this is not a view, it's a view we're trying to we sort of get away from in the 21st century, but it's not one that's entirely gone away. We, you know, as, as I've said in previous episodes, there's still a valuing of uh, female chastity and virginity and things like that in, in teenage girls in particular. Um, but although I don't think we're quite as, um, again, depending on, you know, what kind of community you belong to, you know, I don't think people are quite as stringent about this as they might have been in, in, um, in earlier times where that was a woman's role. She was expected to get married and to have children and that, that was, you know, and to not do that was just somehow some kind of abomination. Uh, Medea, who, um, another, another figure who we'll need to talk about. Uh, the sorceress Medea, who is uh, a niece of uh, Circe or Kirke, depending on how you uh, say it. And she was the one who was seduced by Jason in the story of the Argonautica. And Medea is sort of an archetype of the female who is um, the inappropriate female who vi- basically violates all stereotypes. And she's an interesting one because Medea is also someone who, when she does actually... Um, exceed, I suppose you could say, to what the what the traditional order is, that, you know, when she does take a husband, when she does have children with him, when she does submit to Jason to be his wife, and she does all kinds of things for Jason. She murders her own brother, um, and then she they have to be, you know, they're being, you know, chased, basically chased out of town, and they have to be purified and everything else, and, you know, and then Jason decides to, he finds a better match over in, you know, near Corinth and says, uh, oh, well, you know, it was nice knowing you, and the two kids, see ya, you know, don't be selfish, I mean, I need to make a good day myself, and Medea responds basically by killing the two children, and setting his new bride on fire, and her father, and then taking off on the chariot of the sun, you know, you know, it's, that's how she rolls, she's not, um, and, and you know, and, and again, depending on which version you read about this, uh, of that story, uh, in Greek drama, and in other places, you know, you, it depends on whether or not you have sympathy for Medea, um, I have a lot of sympathy for her, but I'll save that for another episode. Um, okay, so let's talk about the stories themselves. So let's say an example of um, someone who is, uh, <clears throat> you know, trying trying to give some examples of these sort of hanging virgin stories or these these dying maidens who have angered a goddess in some way. Um, one of the first ones um, that is mentioned um, by Sarah Isles Johnston is. Um, Callisto. Now, Callisto is um, was a um, priestess of the goddess Artemis, and she ends up being seduced by Zeus. Now, Zeus actually appears to her in the form of Artemis, so Artemis calls to her, and she says, come here, and so Callisto, of course, dutifully obeys and goes to her, her goddess mistress, and then, of course, it turns out it's Zeus, and he grabs a hold of her and, and rapes her, um, which Artemis does not take kindly to, but of course... 
as always, she's, you know, Zeus is not the one who is blamed. Um, Callista was actually uh, turned into a bear and uh, ends up being hunted by the child that she gives birth to, because this is how Artemis figures out that she's pregnant. And then, uh, you know, when, when she becomes pregnant, figures out what, what's happened. So, um, and eventually what happens is both, um, you know, her son is also turned into a bear and they're both made into constellations in the sky. Um, but, um, Callisto and Arcus. So, you know, there, there's an example of a, a girl who, this is not a hanging virgin story, but that's an example of, uh, you know, a, a virgin girl who, um, who manages to anger a goddess through her, through an inappropriate encounter, even though she, she did not initiate that encounter, considered to be an inappropriate encounter, and she's therefore punished for it, uh, and ends up, uh, well, in some senses, being killed, another maybe being made a constellation, maybe that's not assuming that she's going to be killed. But that was that was the gods taking pity at the last minute and saying, no, you know, let's let's do this. Okay. Um, another some other ones. Um, the story of Ariadne is another one. Now that one's a little complicated because Ariadne, um, she's there's there's several different versions of this story. Ariadne is connected with the story of Theseus. Theseus is the one who goes into the maze and slays the Minotaur, okay? Um, that was the story about the tribute that had to go from Athens to uh, Crete um, because King Minos, uh, somebody, you know, they had the, the ga you know, games there and somebody from Athens um, slew one of the, uh, what you call it, Some, slew, you know, one of, one of the other players. And so, you know, the king of, of course, Athens, of course, wanted to make amends, and he says, well, if one Athenian's guilty, they're all guilty, so he would send a tribute to be fed to the Minotaur. Minotaur's origins are interesting, but I don't want to get too sidetracked with that. In any case, Ariadne falls in love with Theseus, and she gives him, when he has to go into the maze, where usually, you know, they're eaten by the Minotaur and they die, they're not supposed to bring weapons in, but she helps him sneak in a sword, and she gives him a ball of thread so that he can, and she tells him how to go, you know, basically keep going straight and then down, uh, which is interesting. Um, but he keeps, and so he, and he can unwind the ball of thread as he goes so he can find his way back. So he, of course, successfully gets in and out of the maze, slays the Minotaur, saves the rest of the Athenians from being eaten. And then he, um, but, and then, you know, Ariadne wants to marry him. But uh, And he intends to marry her, But they're, and they're waiting on the shore to um, get on the ship, but then... Uh, I believe it's Athena who appears to him and then says, uh, no, you have to go on and, and leave her behind. Now, supposedly, um, <clears throat> in her despair, in some versions, in some of her despair, she kills herself. Uh, in other versions, she gets married to Dionysus, um, who comes to console her by, you know, becoming um, her husband. Um, in any case, there, there's, that's another, um, you know, uh, that's another uh, one, of, one of these stories where you have a, a young girl... And, it's, and it is inappropriate in a sense because she's going against her father. The father figure actually pay, plays a, a big role in this um, because the father is, you know, it, it's sort of, it's kind of like, okay, if we think about weddings today where the father of the bride, you know, walks the bride down the aisle, there's still that tradition of, quote unquote, giving away the bride, um, which is, I don't know, there's... It's funny when you you know we we just do these things automatically as as part. This is what I mean is as part of ritual as part of tradition. When you kind of start to think about it, you kind of go, "Why is somebody giving giving me away?" But anyway, um, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. In any case, 
sometimes these are cases of where uh, the father has died, and that also sends the daughter into grief because now she does not have her father to properly guide her as a rite of passage to her next phase because that is part of the deal. Um, now, one story like this is the story of Erigone. Okay, now um, Erigone. Let me start by telling you what you know. It's giving you sort of a general overview of who she's supposed to be. Um, in Greek myth, she's the daughter of Icarus of Athens. Okay, I'm sorry, not Icarus, Icarius. I'm thinking of the other guy, the one who flows out into the sun, Icarius of Athens. And um, Icarius is the one who's no kind of known for bringing wine to um, to Athens. Um, he's friendly with Dionysus. He gets the wine, you know, wine, and, and you know, but and he gives it to the shepherds, and because they have never experienced intoxication before, they think they're being poisoned, so they kill him. And um, it says, you know, and this is just the sort of little Wikipedia summary, but they say his daughter Erigone and her dog Mira found his body. Erigone hanged herself over her father's grave. Dionysus was angry and punished Athens by making all the city's maidens commit suicide in the same way. Okay, Erigone was placed in the stars as the constellation Virgo. Okay. So that's, and again, here we see Dionysus involved again, though not in a sexual way. It's more that um, he gives a gift, and uh, the gift is, um, Dionysus has his own set of stories where he is, his gifts are rejected, or his divinity is rejected, and there's always very dire consequences. But the important piece that you want to think about here is not only that she hangs herself as a virgin, so she never does make it into womanhood, but the fact that now there's like a curse. So she has hung herself, and now all these other women after her will also hang themselves. Okay, um, and there's an, there's an interesting tradition in here. Um, it's I'm going to read a little bit from Isles Johnston here on this story. Um, so in what she says here, there are two variations of Erigone's myth. In each, which we can dis we can discern contamination by other myths and rituals. The one that is better known tells of how Dionysus came to Athens during the time of King Acarius, who is said to be Erigone's father. Having received the gift of wine from Dionysus, Icarus shared it with his neighbors. We know this part. Um, so that's the version we just read. The other version of Erigone's myth makes her the daughter of Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. Um, Aegisthus being the um, half-brother of Agamemnon, who pursues, pursues Aristes to Athens, seeking vengeance for their murders. At this point, the story splits into two endings. Either Erigone hangs herself in grief when Aristes is acquitted on the Areopagus, or she is threatened by Aristes, who has already killed her brother Elites. In the second variation, Artemis intervenes at the last minute, whisking Erigone away to become a priestess in her Athenian temple. Now, what's interesting about the second version is that um, that's also very, very similar in some ways to the story of Iphigenia, who Agamemnon, um, actually this is the whole reason Clytemnestra is really angry with Agamemnon, is that Iphigenia is taken to be sacrificed for favorable winds. Um, and by the way, similar to Cothonia herself, the other, another um, daughter of uh, Athenian king who being sacrificed for, you know, fav you know favorable outcome in war. Um, and, and in that case as well, at least in one version of that story, Artemis comes and whisks her away either to be a temple priestess or to become the goddess Hecate, a point we will get to later on. Okay. So, um, so... Isles Johnston kind of goes on to say why she's kind of suspicious of the Dionysus version. Um, 
the way she says it is, uh, the first version of Origene's story has been contaminated by Dionysi Dionysiac concerns. Except perhaps in a late version that makes Dionysus seduce Origene, there is no further connection between the girl and the god of wine. We might guess that because the rites associated with Origene's myth were practiced at the same time of year as the, um, I'm never going to say this right, Anthesteria, okay, I did say it right, this festival incorporated so many other diverse elements incorporated her rites too, therefore, to, and thereby pulled Origene in, into Dionysus' orbit. So in other words, her, the festival that has to do with Erigone. Um, and, and it's an interesting one when I tell you about it. Um, is, uh, you know, that, this, that because it takes place around the same time as Dionysus' festival, therefore um, they kind of try to find a way to fit Dionysus into the story. This is, this is uh, Sarah Isles Johnston. Um, so um, the second version, this is again, I'm quoting again from this, uh, uh, from uh, Restless Dead. Uh, the second version of Origene's story serves to bring her into connection with the epic cycle, and specifically with the popular Mycenaean saga. The plot may have been suggested uh, by the fact that Aristides' flight from Mycenae was already was associated with the Anthesteria. The first day of the festival included a special rite that commemorated the, his arrival in Athens after the murders. But whatever the exact apparatus was that brought Origene into association with the house of Atreus, the point was to associate a local Athenian heroine with an important pan-Hellenically uh, uh, famous myth. Now, of course, that myth, if you, you know, if that's, you don't know what they mean by that, that has to do with um, the Trojan War, and it has to do with the house of Atreus, um, and again, Agamemnon, who was king of Mycenae, he is one of the chief generals of the Trojan War, and this is the cycle that I'm talking about, where he sacrifices his daughter for favorable winds, and then, um, you know, there's actually, the House of Atreus actually has a huge amount of intrigue. It's not the subject of this podcast, which is why I'm not going to get into that. But it, House of Atreus might be something that's worth looking up. Um, if people are interested in me doing a special, um, you know, discussion or class or genealogy of, of, of that particular aspect of Greek myth, I'm happy to do so. But it would have to be a separate thing. So, um yeah, so there's the death. Then Clytemnestra plots to kill an Agamemnon because, you know, she's, you know, and she plots with his half-brother Aegisthus, um, who's a product of incest, but we won't get into that. Um, and then, of course, they kill him, and then Aristes has to come. And that, that's what we were talking about when we talked about the Arrhenius episode, um, the story of Aristes. So we talked about the Oresteia there, and that's, that's the very famous epic that uh, she's referring to here. Okay. So, um... Okay, so just to go on on what she's saying, uh, Sarah Isles Johnson is saying, Underneath the accretions of each version lies the simple tale of a maiden whose life was cut off before she could marry. The fact is in both versions of her tragedy, um, it, it, that in both versions, her tragedy is precipitated by the death of her father, the man who would have arranged her marriage, and in one version by subsequent death of her brother as well, the man who would have arranged her marriage in her father's absence. Makes this point clearer. She is alone without anyone to guarantee her proper passage from maiden to wife. So that's, that's to the point I made earlier. Um, it is also significant that she dies by hanging herself, for as noted already, this is a means of death particularly associated with the deaths of virgins, and even more so with the deaths of virgins connected to Artemis. Okay. Um, as Helen King has shown in detail, this bloodless death uh, emblematizes the fact that they have not and never will bleed um, as women are properly bound to bleed on their wedding nights or in the course of childbirth, or, and I'm going to add, when one menstruates. Okay. 
As we shall see below, the hanging oneself on a tree, as opposed to anything else, is also typical for girls connected to Artemis and may reflect this goddess's connection with trees in cult. Of course, this alternative, in the, the alternative ending to the story in which Erigone becomes a priestess of Artemis follows another theme commonly found in Maiden's tragedies. Okay. Um, it indicates the myth was um, an Aetion for some Attic cults of Artemis. Okay. Now, in, as far as the curse goes, okay, and now in some versions, like I mentioned, the one I just mentioned to you, Dionysus curses the Athenians, in the other version, Erigone herself curses them. And she condemns all their daughters to swing just as she was swinging from the tree. Um, Athenian virgins then began to kill themselves in droves to stop the suicides and at the advice of Delphi, the oracle of Apollo, uh, the Athenians then instituted the rite of the Aora, swinging, in which the girls fulfilled the letter, if not the spirit, of Erigone's curse by swinging on chairs suspended from trees by ropes in much of the same manner as children now swing. Indeed, in vase paintings of the scene, the activity sometimes looks rather playful. The Aora was celebrated on the third and final day of the Anthesteria. Now that's important right there. Okay, this and so what so as part of the sort of coming of age ritual for young girls, um, they were they would get on these swings and they would participate in the Aora as a means of um, thwarting any kind of premature death before they could fulfill their what we'll call their womanly role. Okay, now this now this one is interesting as well. I have uh, I have some notes on this elsewhere. Um, let me just uh, let me just find my uh, aha. Here we go. I'm just kind of jumping around. I made notes. I always make notes for my podcast in advance. But um, this is a this is a subject where so many things are so interwoven. Um, I'm trying to make sure that uh, I keep all of the appropriate things together. Um, okay. So um, the first thing is, okay, so let's talk about this uh, song called the um, Aletis or the Wanderer. Um, and uh, again, I'll quote from Isles Johnston here. It was also performed by Athenian girls on the third day of the Anthesteria. Our sources say that it commemorated the wandering of Erigone, whom they say took on the name Aletis, as she searched for her missing father. Okay, so we have this theme of wandering. Uh, we might guess that the name of her brother in the second version of myth, Aletes, alternatively explain the institution of the song. Okay. Um, the name of the song implies a further significance for it, it echoes the theme found in many myths about girls undergoing transition. Often the event that interrupts the transition also compels them to leave their homes and wander abroad in the countryside or in foreign lands. For example, Ariadne goes to Crete, um, Io travels the ancient world, the Protides were another... Um, group of girls who die of a young age run in the fields. This is appropriate for the transition represents a time of life when the individual is neither fully girl nor fully woman. She is not at home in neither camp. Okay, so she's in a liminal space. She's in between. Even when not connected with transitional myths, wandering is associated with characters who are exiled from normal life and normal roles. Odysseus is a prime example of this. Um, Indeed, um, the Etymologicum Magnum tells us that Elitus was not only the name of an Athenian song and a nickname for its heroine, but also a nickname of that most abnormal of all mythic characters, Medea, woman who spent her life wandering in exile from one city-state to another precisely because she rejected the proper female roles of dutiful daughter, submissive wife, and nurturing mother. 
Okay. Dan and here's another point. Dangerous ghosts, too, are para paradigm paradigmatic wanderers, in part because they are excluded from resting in the underworld. Okay. So... <clears throat> Yeah, so the theme of wandering is here too. So we've got the theme of hanging and the theme of wandering. They're, these two rites end up being connected. Um, probably there's some relationship too to the rites of Artemis Broron in which um, the girls also run around, as they say, acting like bears. But I'll save that for the Artemis episode. Um, so the idea is that this is to preclude any real disaster from happening to the girls. And... Um, <clears throat> So, yeah, in my notes, I'm saying, okay, when we talk about wandering, it's not only the search for a missing loved one. We can look at the myth of Demeter and Persephone that way, too. Her mother is sort of a wanderer as well, searching for her daughter, um, although the search does come to an end. Um, it can refer to leaving home, okay, like presumably when one becomes married, you know, now their um, they're, the husband might take them far away, okay? Okay. Representing the rejection of traditional roles, so therefore you wander. You're not tethered down to a, a particular domestic um, or familial lifestyle. Um, and again, mirrors the behavior of ghosts in the underworld who are not admitted. You know, they're not. They they kind of have to. They they have to kind of hang around on the edge because. So in a way, they're neither in the world of the dead or the living. And I think that's where the threat is considered to be here, because the idea is to be in the underworld is fine. Then you're in the underworld. If you're stuck in that in-between place, that's just not a very good place to be. Okay, so, um, okay, so let me just uh, look at some of my other things here. Um, yeah, and she makes another point um, that I didn't quote before, but I have it quoted in my notes, uh, Sarah Isles Johnson again. She says, the meaning of the death of the mythic virgin, she says, there's a reason to think that they, like the goddesses with whom they were connected, could cause trouble for real girls in the, of the polis of the city-state, if not effectively dealt with, okay? So, um, yeah, so there's, so there's this idea that, um, you know, the, the, the idea, you're, you're certainly getting the impression here that the transition from girlhood to womanhood is a rather dangerous time. There's a tremendous amount of mythology surrounding this, okay? Let me give you one other story here um, of Karya, okay? And again, I'm going to have to read it. I do have, uh, well, let me, I can give you a brief explanation of who she is. She's from Laconia, and she is the daughter of the Laconian king Dion and his wife Amphithea. Um, and uh, King Dion, and Amphithea, daughter of Pronax. Okay. Her sisters were Lyco and Orphe. Apollo, in reward for Dion and Amphithe receiving him with great reverence and hospitality, bestowed a gift of prophecy upon their daughters, but imposed a restriction that they should not betray gods nor search after forbidden lore. Oh, can't, no practicing witchcraft there, girls. Okay. So, later, Dionysus, gosh darn it if he doesn't show up again, also paid a visit to Dion's house and was received with equal hospitality. During his stay, he fell in love with Caria and lay with her secretly. He left that he then left, but missing Caria soon returned under the pretext of consecrating a temple in which Dion had built for him. But Lyco and Orphe, suspecting a love affair between Dionysus and their sister, guarded Caria to prevent her from having intercourse with the god. By doing so, they committed a violation of the restrictions imposed by Apollo. So Dionysus, after several warnings and threats, drove the two sisters mad, in which state they ran off to Mount Tagetus where they were transformed into rocks. Caria was changed and dived up by Dionysus into a walnut tree. Okay. And from these circumstances, later arose the cult of Artemis uh, Cariatus. Okay. Now, um, 
Very interesting story, because in this story also, which is not mentioned in this particular um, summary, is that um, there's also... Um, there were also a rash of virgins hanging themselves from, you know, from the nut tree, you know, um, hanging, you know, so Caria herself isn't hung, but it's like a cursed tree from which many virgins decide to hang themselves. Okay, so again, um, you know, interesting um, example of kind of mass, I don't know, mass hysteria would that be? Let's see. Um, <clears throat> and um, the, the Sarah Isles Johnson uses the term... Um, Prostropeos, okay, which is a term she uses for origine and also for caria, and it's the idea of a woman, a girl who it's like there has to be tribute. Now, once the girl dies, it's like there's a curse left behind and tribute must be paid, okay? You have to be propitiated, okay? That's, you know, or there needs to be prostrations or offerings before that. Um, let's see, uh... Let me just find, I just want to find the actual, um, there's a lot of um, preliminary stuff here about um, back going back to Origany, but I want to kind of, I want to get to, um, uh, to where she is. Okay. Yeah. Let us return now to myth and ritual complexes by means of the story of Caria. In the fullest version of the myth, Caria is a Laconian girl seduced by Dionysus, subsequently turned by him into a nut tree when her sisters prevented her from ex accepting his further advances. Richard Seifert has suggested the myth expresses the divided loyalties of the transitional girl. She is torn between her natal family and the stranger, Dionysus, who comes from outside to marry her. Okay, remember what I said about the bad boy. When handled incorrectly, the myth seems to say the transfer of loyalty from natal to marital family ends in tragedy. Seifert is surely correct, but we must wonder whether in other cases, including that of Origany, by the way, I'm quoting Isles Johnston again, just want to make it clear I'm quoting, uh, Dionysiac concerns have been grafted onto another myth. Cariatis uh, was Artemis's cult title at a famous Laconian temple in the village of Cariae near Caphi. The priestesses there were called Cariatidae, and each year Laconian girls performed a dance called the Cariatis at a festival in honor of Artemis called the Cariatia. Boy, how many different ways can we say that? These pieces of information, combined with the basic plot of the myth, an unmarried girl becomes involved in an illicit sexual relationship and subsequently suffers, indicate that the myth of Caria originally was associated with Artemis and with a dance performed by girls in the festival in that goddess's honor. Judging from Artemis's Epiclesius and the name of her local festivity in Preciuses, the Carua tree must have been sacred to her in Laconia, the nut tree, that is. Thus, Caria's transformation would signify the same thing as being transformed into a cult statue. Um, and um, as in the case of Origenes' myth, Dionysus seems remarkably dispensable, thrust into the role of seducer that almost any male could have played. It is probable that in the original myth, it was Artemis, not Dionysus, who turned Caria into the nut tree, either to punish the girl for having been seduced or perhaps to rescue her from threatened rape. Okay, that's the other thing. Either would bring the story into alignment um, with the paradigm discussed at the beginning of that section. Okay. Um, honorable though this transformation may have been, it prevents Caria from completing her transition from virgin to mother, and thus leaves her permanently stranded in the same liminal state as Origany. Um, and that's the, um, you know, that is the uh, part of the problem there. Um, so, you, so again, there's this idea of the, the difficulty of, of liminality. Okay. <clears throat> um, 
just a quick mention of a couple of other examples of virgins who um, die before their time. The, the Pandariids are mentioned in the Odyssey by Penelope. And what their, their tragic story seems to be um, that they are, uh, you know, they're, they're based, they're also in a case where they are supposed to be um, married, you know, things go wrong. And again, to quote Isles Johnston here, at first it seems disaster will nonetheless be averted and the girls will live out normal lives, for they adopted by four goddesses who are especially adept at preparing girls to become wives and mothers. Aphrodite feeds them, Hera gives them exceptional beauty and wisdom, Artemis gives them stature, and Athena teaches them handiwork. Just as Aphrodite is arranging their marriages, another disaster strikes. The harpies snatch the girls. Harpies are these, um, you know, these winged um, bird-like creatures with a sort of uh, female heads. Another, another chthonic set of monsters. Um, I think they may, we see them in um, the Argonautica in particular. Uh, they snatch the girls and hand them over to the Erinus, with whom they will be compelled to accompany forevermore. <clears throat> okay, so remember when I talked about the Erinus in that episode, that um, I talked about girls who um, die before their time. Um, in this case, I believe there was probably a, a loss of the, of the parents again, and then um, you know, so they're they're like I said, they're adopted by these goddesses, but then they are still snatched away uh, to the underworld before they have a chance to become quote unquote you know full women here. Now, of course, as she notes, we don't actually know why this happened. So we don't know if something wrong was done wrong. We, we don't know exactly why this occurred. Okay. Um, and also, we don't know what it's meant. And she also, she, as Tara Isles Johnson points out, she also fails to explain what does it mean to accompany the Arrhenius. Um now, the guess that Isles Johnston makes, the Arrhenius were well-known as spirits of the underworld who caused problems for the living. In literature, their attacks look justified. They punish those who transgress the rules of civilized behavior. Okay. Um, so there may be... Um, uh, so there, so one might guess that in some way that, that, that some kind of rule was violated in spite of the fact that these goddesses stepped in. Um, and uh, let's see. And then... Um, Helen, actually, and we're talking about the same Helen who was associated with the Trojan War, the, the, the face that launched a thousand ships from, uh, um, from uh, I believe that was Gerda, um, who says that uh, they had, uh, in this particular one, um, Helen is, let me, let me just find the story here because I do have it. Uh, yes. After the death of Menelaus, Helen was driven out of Laconia and arrived in Rhodes, hoping to find a home with her friend um, Polyxo, the widow of uh, Telepolemus. Polyxo, however, blaming Helen for her husband's death at Troy, secretly plotted revenge. One day she disguised her serving women as Erinus and sent them to attack Helen, who was bathing. The women seized Helen and hanged her from a nearby tree. Okay. It is for this reason, Pausanias concludes, that Rhodians now have a temple of Helen uh, Dendritus, Helen of the tree. Okay. And so again, we have somebody hanging from a tree. Women in particular hanging from a tree. Okay, and that's kind of a, an alternate thing. Um, it's also interesting to note that the main goddess associated with these uh, events is, um, is Artemis. Okay, I'm looking at a, a little chart that she has here. If, if anybody owns this book, it's on page 248, but she has a little table, uh, Dying Maidens in Greek Myth. And um, 
In most cases, only a failed transition. You know, most of them were hanged, except for the Pandariids and uh, Iniphagenia, who was uh, who was sacrificed. Um, in some cases, uh, they become a priestess. In other cases, they're turned into a nut tree or into a statue. And in all of these cases, um, and yeah, and some of them are associated with certain rights to um, <coughs> protect young girls from uh, doing that. You know, from you know have, suffering some such a, such a fate where they would be left in in such a liminal state. And, uh, and, and in other cases, too, like with Iphigenia, which I'm, a story that I actually want to save, she's not a hanging virgin, for one thing, so that doesn't really uh, apply here. Um, but the sacrifice of Iphigenia, her being saved by Artemis, and like, again, in, in Hesiod's catalog of women, and then in another, <clears throat> um, there's another source, too, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but they both say that she's spirited away and becomes the goddess Hecate. Okay, so Hecate also tends to be connected with these kinds of myths. Um, <clears throat> I will, I, I want to get more into that in the Hecate episode, uh, you know, because it's, it's, um, there's, 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 a, there's a little bit um, more there that has to do with the relationship between Artemis and Hecate. But again, and, and I've always said that Hecate is sort of the underworld Artemis. Uh, I do think the two are, are very intimately connected. But Artemis herself, even though um, she's technically a virgin huntress, that's, that's her main role, um, she's very liminal herself. She's got a foot in both worlds. She's a female goddess, but she's sort of associated with something we tend to associate with men, which is hunting. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, and, and I think... Ultimately, then, then we have to look at the question here. Why is this such a um, huge mythological subject? Why is, why is the idea of, um, you know, wh you know what, is, what, is, what is such a, what is the danger of passing from, um, you know, girlhood to womanhood? I mean, is it, is it simply, well, maybe I shouldn't say simply, it's maybe not the right phrase but is it is it really just about the fact the um the the pains of uh, menstruation is it really just about um the dangers of childbirth i mean not not again I'm, i say it in that tone mainly because i don't want to um let's call it uh <clears throat> i really i don't want to minimize that because and especially at that time nowadays it's probably far less dangerous uh at least if you have proper hospitalization and so forth um, still, still not a pleasant experience by any means. Um, even, even, even for women who love ch their children <clears throat> and love having children, um, you know, childbirth is is a trauma. So, you know, that whole so you know, and it could be just the the the, the propensity for either girls to because of their high hormone level or whatever to wander off and maybe do something they're not supposed to or the you know the dangers of just <clears throat> everything associated with female sexuality which um you know that i mean you wonder if that's really where these myths come from is that really the the whole essence of them um to me there, there seems to be something i mean it, it's something to be thought about I'm, I'm, i have to basically leave it as an open question mainly because as i've as i've mentioned sort of in my introduction to this whole series of podcasts for some reason the feminine um fed that that kind of female energy is very very threatening to society seems to be threatening to society especially when we talk about a patriarchal society and we and one of the questions i sort of raise in, in creating this whole series is why why are why are you why you know why do women have to be kept in a state of virginity? Why do women have to be submission? What you know what's what's the reason for this? 
I mean, is it just, you know, um, is it just that, you know, we're, we're trying to maintain traditional boundaries and grow families? Is it still really about that? Um, because it's, it's an idea that subconsciously has not gone away in our culture. We still sort of have this idea that, um, somehow there's something, there's something so dangerous about that period. And I don't think at this point, it's really just something that's about, um, women entering woman, you know, people going into womanhood. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think that's part of it. I'm not saying that's not part of it, but there seems to be something to explore there about why this might be, um, why this female, this feminine, this creative feminine energy might be considered so dangerous, at least in the Western world. But there's a lot more explanation for things in the Eastern world. But um, that that will be another uh, separate series of podcasts, which I look forward to doing, actually. I love, I love the Eastern myths. Um, okay, so with that, I hear people outside my door. So I'm going to finish up, and I'm just going to say thank you again for listening. Um, please check out my website, cathoniagot.net. There's some cool new stuff coming up. I should have classes coming up soon, um, probably by like mid-October. I think we're going to do an underworld mythology class. I'll be having special workshops on the demonic and the feminine. Uh, those dates will be determined. That will be a shorter event. And... Um, And I've got some more, you know, I'm going to be doing some rearranging and there's some new stuff coming up. I I would like to revamp some of the website, too, because it's kind of, you know, it it could use some maintenance. Um, But check it out. Um, If you're interested in donating to any of my my projects, uh, patreon.com slash chthonia is where my my, uh, patron site is. And you get special rewards as a patron. You can check those out. And, um, you know, and of course, you know, you know, it's this is available on um, you know metapsychosis.com. Um, there's, there's a series. I should have an interview coming out soon um, with Marco Morelli, introducing that series uh, for metapsychosis readers and and, and um, listeners. So um, with that, I want to say thank you very much. Thank you, big thank you to my patrons, and I will talk to all of you in the next uh, episode.